listen to 88.3 FM, The Grizz, live from Oakland University in the Rochester Hills, Michigan. Listen to Sports Day in the D. I'm your host, John Ott. It's going to be October 4, 2012. Just want to do a little clarification on this week's show. It was supposed to air yesterday on the Oakland University airwaves. I guess some of the stuff got messed up on the soundboard and might have gotten delayed. So this show, I'm going to skip the formalities but pretty much tell you that this show is going to be most of what I talked about what you were going to hear in yesterday's show and I'm going to add a little bit more so consider this Sports Day in the D version an overtime segment go for about an hour and a half on this one so let's get into it right away first topic your Detroit Lions as they take on the Minnesota Vikings the Lions lose 20 to 13 to the Minnesota Vikings and there were some immediate takeaways that we had to talk about that has haunted the Lions in the last couple of weeks and they've come back to the forefront in this week four matchup. And I'm talking about the horrific badness of the special teams of the Detroit Lions. They're trying to really set NFL records and they're really not trying to set them in a good way because the Lions give up four special teams touchdowns in two games. That's almost unheard of. And when I think about special teams touchdowns, I think about giving a team immediate momentum with the clock really not moving and it's just the game can be over at some points before it even gets going and Percy Harvin in the first quarter for the Vikings decided to get the kickoff return and take it 105 yards to the house and there was three moments in this game all early early first early second and early third quarter and when the Vikings had just taken momentum right away from the lines. And I'm talking about in the early second quarter as well, when all day Adrian Peterson comes back and he's looking like his old self, like he's never been injured and missed a lot of time. Dude broke about five or six tackles, was getting some long runs early in the second, and was pretty much demoralizing the Detroit Lions. And then early in the third quarter, Marcus Sherrills takes a Nick Harris punt, who pretty much I talked about last week. You know, the Ben Graham was the punter. I thought Nick Harris was the punter. Graham goes down, so Harris comes back. And how does he get greeted? A 65-yard punt gets taken all the way to the house for a touchdown. And I got a big problem on this one because if you've seen the replay of that uh, Sherrill's put in for the end zone, about seven Minnesota Vikings come in there with him. They might as well have just done some synchronized dance moves and everything, go in, just do that... uh, Peter Griffin, Tom Beatty, Patriots episode where they all do the synchronized dance and go, shit poopy, shit poopy, because they were all pretty much going in the end zone. It was pretty embarrassing. So for the Lions, you don't take a lot of good things away from this game. And you look at these numbers from Matthew Stafford, and you're going to say, well, he didn't play so bad going 30 of 51 for 319 yards. But you can't let that fool you because the only touchdown the Lions had got was a Matthew Stafford rushing touchdown and two field goals from Jason Hansen. And they got that way too late. The game was already over with the special teams touchdowns because, hell, if you add up those two special teams touchdowns, Vikings still beat the Lions 14-13 in that regard. So the game was already over. And... The Lions have a lot of problems. It's not just the special teams in that regard, because they are horrifically bad. That is the main problem. But the Lions' offense, up to week four right now, and thank God they're going into a bye for week five, because I don't think anybody around Detroit can really stand to watch this team from the way that they're playing. But 
the offense really hasn't gotten going either. Before, we mentioned in the previous shows that maybe the Lions would be comfortable running a no huddle, and I think they've tried to do something like that in this game, and they didn't really look any more comfortable doing that. And I had also mentioned last week the possibility of trading Matthew Stafford and Adamican Sue to maybe shore up the running back position. I know Mikel Deshore has been good, but I didn't really bank on him to be you know, as good as everybody thinks he could be. I want want to try to get like a Maurice Jones-Drew or something like that, even though I know it's going to cost a lot of money. So, hence, Stafford and Sue. And you've seen what people would think if Sean Hill performed like he did last week, pretty much getting the Lions into OT and having them lose that way, if the Lions could just get by with Sean Hill at quarterback and still have Megatron. Just use the rest of that money to get a really good running back to have like a two-headed punch and then solidify up that defense because let's be honest too that defense needs a lot of work the uh, Vandenbosch, Sue, Cliff Averill, all those guys haven't been able to get a lot of pressure only got two sacks in this game compared to the Minnesota Vikings getting five sacks in this game and it's just if they're not getting pressure and the special teams is not performing well and the offense is not even hitting on all cylinders, you shouldn't be surprised that the Lions are 1-3 and three right now going into in Week 4 and luckily will be 1-3 and three after Week 5, not have to tack on another L right away. So if you don't see the Lions playing well on any of these facets, then I got news for you. After this bye, the Lions have to go and play the Bears at Soldier Field. And Matthew Stafford is going to be lucky if his head doesn't get decapitated and they put his head on a on the Chicago Bears flagstick at Soldier Field and parade around because Julius Peppers and Brian Urlacher are licking their chops the way that the Lions are playing right now. Matthew Stafford could walk away with a serious injury and in terms be hurt because the Bears can put up a massive score against the Lions and this game could be over quickly. And if things don't get any worse, you know, we talk about Michael Vick and the fact that he can definitely make plays with his feet and he can definitely throw the ball when he needs to, but a guy like that is prone to having a lot of interceptions. So what did Michael Vick try to do to quiet the critics? He bit the the defending Super Bowl champion New York Giants and he did it by not committing a turnover himself. So it shows you that he can go ahead and play clean football. And you might go ahead and say that the Eagles have the Giants number, and that's pretty much why the Eagles were able to go ahead and win that game. They only won by two. But I'm saying maybe you could say they just match up well against them. But you think about it that way. If the Lions have to play the Bears at Soldier Field, and then they have to go to Philadelphia and play the Eagles, not looking too good in terms of getting victories for the Detroit Lions. You can really see them being 1-5, and five, and pretty much at this point with 1-3, and three, the way that football is, I know there's 16 games and all that, but you go ahead and put yourself in a start like that, and you think about having the schedule not getting any easier going down the stretch, the Lions have pretty much put a bullet on their season already. So there's a lot of things to have to think about, and even if you don't agree with some of the things I say about making some changes, I think the Lions know, I think Jim Shorts knows, I think changing offensive and defensive schemes or doing whatever they need to do. I think they know going into the next season they need to make and the next season in the off season they need to make some adjustments that the Lions can't continue to parade themselves to be a good offensive ball club and nothing else, especially when the offense isn't hitting on all cylinders. So we talked about 
Minnesota's aspect of this game, about getting early attacks on the lines and making them look silly. And before, at least a couple of weeks before, and even with the Tennessee Titans, I mean, if you would have asked me a few weeks ago, before the season even started, you would say, did you think the Lions were going to lose any games to the Tennessee Titans and the Minnesota Vikings? And I would have said, hell no, that's not possible. Probably would have even bet my house on it. But now looking the way that the Lions are playing, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, the Minnesota beat a playoff team, they should feel good. And I can't use that argument anymore because last week they beat the San Francisco 49ers, so everybody said they're going to the Super Bowl. You know, and now they play against the Lions, and the way that the Lions are, I know last week they were ranked about 20 something, and I'm sure now after these power rankings, they're more close to 30 or that 30 mark, and they're just not a good football team. So I think if you're Minnesota, there would be a lot of questions and a lot of eyes pointed to you if you don't go out and beat the Lions because it looks like right now anybody who plays them should be able to kick their ass. So beating the 49ers is good for the Minnesota Vikings, but the Lions didn't help themselves by giving up huge plays on special teams. Pretty much all the momentum got sapped away, and they look to be at the bottom of the power rankings, so it's not good. In terms of what Christian Pondre had done, I know he played really well against the Minnesota Vikings, his numbers don't look that great. I mean, he's pretty economical, 16 of 26, 111 yards. And as far as Adrian Peterson goes, 21 attempts rushing for 102 yards. And, you know, they got that special teams work there. And I think their defense and everything played pretty well in this game, too. It was just they're more of an all-around better team right now than the Detroit Lions. And you might go ahead and say, I don't believe in the Minnesota Vikings that they're 3-1 and one right now, and they could be frauds going down into the season. You don't trust the early start. Well, right now, beating the 49ers, beating the Detroit Lions, beating two playoff teams and all of that, I, like I said, I throw the Lions thing up, but beating the 49ers definitely helps them, and a 3-1 and one record is a 3-1 and one record. That's, I can't say it any better than that. So you can say that they're frauds and all of that, but... The Vikings are sitting pretty. The Bears are sitting pretty. I believe they got the same record right now. So feel good if you're a Vikings fan. You don't think too many good things are coming up if you're a Lions fan. We're going to go ahead and take a break, and then we're going to get into some Michigan State Spartans as they took out the took on the Ohio State Buckeyes and let you know how they fared right after the break. All right, guys, welcome back. Sports Day in the DWXOU, live from Oakland University. Going to get into some Michigan State football now as they had taken on the Ohio State Buckeyes. They lose to the Buckeyes 17-16. to As far as the big numbers go, Andrew Maxwell, 269 yards and a touchdown at quarterback. And for rushing, Ohio State quarterback Braxton Miller, 23 carries, 136 yards. So since Ohio State have won this game, improved to 5-0 and 1-0 and on the season, we're going to go ahead and talk about Ohio State first. So similarly, like the Detroit Lions, the Ohio State Buckeyes come out and they punch Michigan State right in the mouth because they score a touchdown on their first possession. Not a kickoff return or anything, but they punch it in. Braxton Miller, highly responsible for that. Rushing 23 times for 136 yards and throwing the ball, he was good as well. 16, 16 out of 23, 179 yards with a touchdown. 
And as far as Braxton Miller goes, I drew a lot of similarities from watching this game between him and Denard Robinson. You know, he can make us, even when I mentioned Michael Vick in the last segment, you make us some plays both ways, but he could be prone to some turnovers. And he was in this game. He was really good, but he was in this game. He had some turnovers. He He threw a pick, and he fumbled the ball twice. And the biggest thing for Braxton Miller compared to last year, last year he rushed for a negative two yards. This game, he averaged about six yards a rush, rushed for 136 yards. So Braxton Miller played like a beast in this game. He was pretty good. I mean, he was showing me, in terms of what I think about, I would think that he's the definitive version of Denard Robinson from what I saw in this game, because Ohio State, as you know, they can't go into the postseason because of the Terrell Pryor, Jim Trestle, merchandise selling memorabilia and all that stuff. Certainly not as bad about what happened at Penn State and everything, but regardless, they are uh, banned from the postseason, so they can't get in this year. So Michigan State's probably the best defense that they're going to go up against this season, and they get the job done winning 17-16. to So for the rest of Ohio State, to be interested to know that Braxton Miller incorporates for himself 70% of his team's offense this season. It's a lot. Dude got injured twice in this game, especially when uh, Golston for Michigan State was lying down on the ground. I think he got the wind knocked out of him and stuff, so Braxton Miller took a hit as well. And classy part by him, though, was he laid down enough, so Braxton Miller was able to get up and catch himself before Braxton Miller appeared to get up, though he was hurt on the play. And there was one other time when Miller got hit on the sideline and got hurt that time. So Jordan Hill for Ohio State as well tore had a PCL tear in his knee, so I believe he's going to miss most of the season, if not all of the rest of this college football season. So they're going to miss him as well. And I think an ESPN blog sums up Ohio State about more than I ever could, is that they're not a dominant team. We know that they're 5-0 and 1-0 and now in Big Ten, the first game Big Ten play, but they lack weapons on offense, and their defense hadn't lived up to a preseason billing in the first four games, and they can be maddenly inconsistent. But yet, as you know, Ohio State's undefeated, and even though they hadn't really played anybody, because let's be honest, like I said, they can't get in the postseason and all that, there really isn't incentive to play too many high-quality teams. Ohio State had 204 rushing yards in this game compared to Michigan State's 34 rushing yards. That's not too bad against a good Michigan State defense. And as far as Michigan State goes, there's some things that really ended up hurting them in this game and was really surprising to me. Because Le'Veon Bell, as we know, is like one of the best rushers in the Big Ten, and Michigan State might not depend on Le'Veon as much as Ohio State does with Braxton Miller. I believe that's about 40% of the time for Le'Veon Bell for his team's offense. But Le'Veon was hit within two yards of the line of scrimmage on 15 of 17 rushes against Ohio State. And get this, he failed to rush for a first down for the first time since his freshman season. The longest run that Bell got against Ohio State's defense was an eight-yard rush in the second quarter. And Le'Veon only had 17 rushes for just 45 yards, and a team total of, like I said before, 34 rushing yards. And Michigan State did try to do some interesting things to open up Le'Veon's game, 
And I had seen a lot in this game that they had spread the field, try to get some screen passes, try to get some stuff open up, because I believe that Michigan State knew, and the Kirk Herbstreit had mentioned this with uh, Brent Mothlisberger, that they believed that Michigan State knew they couldn't throw the ball or couldn't run the ball in this game, so they had to do what they needed to do to try to throw it more and open up Le'Veon Bell. So if Homeboy's not rushing for some first downs, he doesn't even get one. You know what? I think it tells me one other thing about Michigan State's defense. We said that they were good. They only lose by a point, and they can't get anything going on the ground with Le'Veon Bell. I don't think it's that bad in that regard. The Michigan State defense did get these three turnovers with the two fumbles from Braxton Miller and the interception, but the three three turnovers only resulted in a field goal. So it wasn't enough to get it done. And as far as Michigan State goes with Dan Conroy, the field goal kicker, we know that he's got a bomb for a leg. Guy can go out and get you 50 and 55-yard field goals. Well, Conroy missed his fifth field goal in five games this season for the Spartans. And pundits can go out there and say, well, if Conroy didn't miss that field goal, the Michigan State would have ended up winning this game. And you know what? Maybe you can say that they're right because that's what it says on the scoreboard. But really... Most of my blame comes from the fact that Michigan State got those three turnovers and were only able to get a field goal out of it. So what do they do? There's been a lot of stuff going on in terms of what was on 97 won the ticket here in Detroit, and I agree with what Mike Valeni had said when he had talked about that he draws some similarities between the Michigan State Spartans and the Detroit Lions, and what he was getting at pretty much was the team is inconsistent on offense, and their defense is good. Like the Lions' defense was, maybe you don't say it's great because the secondary is bad and they're not getting as much pressure and all that. So maybe that's where you differ a little bit. But offense isn't really performing. The defense isn't really performing. And it's just, I think Michigan State, and Nate Burleson said so as much for the Lions, of their receiver had said, I don't think that the Lions are playing with a chip on their shoulder. And I think both of these teams can be guilty of that. In the terms of where the blame might belong in that regard, a lot of people like to throw it on Andrew Maxwell because he's a freshman quarterback and you know maybe he's just not making some of the throws that he needs to make and you know he's just trying to get comfortable and everything else. And some blame might even go to the Michigan State receivers because it's a very young receiver receiver core full of freshmen. And maybe they don't know which routes to run, or maybe they're coming up with the criticism lately of that they just can't catch a damn ball. And what I'd seen Maxwell try to do, I, I think there was some signs of him like starting to get impatient in this game. And maybe that stems from how the season has rolled along. But you'd seen Andrew Maxwell try to throw the ball in there as hard as he could to hit his receivers in the face mask to try to force them to catch it. Because if he lodged it right in the damn face mask, then there's no way the ball would come out. He said, guys, please catch this. I'm throwing it in there as hard as I can. Just get it done and let's go. I think he was getting a little bit frustrated with that. So what do you guys think in terms of the Michigan State loss and where does the blame belong? If you want to answer some of these questions or just get at me here at Sports Day in the D from Oakland University, you can go ahead and catch me on Facebook and Twitter. The uh, handle is going to be capital TBU and then a space, capital G, 
for Gunslinger. So TBU Gunslinger. You can get at me here on Sports Day in the D in Oakland University and just uh, send some messages of what you think on the topics as we roll along here. So as far as the Big Ten goes, it's down and it doesn't look too good. But Ohio State is sitting pretty at 5-0 and and 1-0. and Like I said, they hadn't played anybody. But as far as they go, they're undefeated. And Michigan State is going to be the best defense that they'll probably play against all season. Next week is going to be a test for them. And I don't know if you go ahead and call it a test, but the Nebraska Cornhuskers are indeed ranked. And I believe that's the last ranked team that Ohio State is going to play this season because unless the Michigan Wolverines perform a mini-miracle and they get ranked at the final game of the season when Ohio State takes them on, Nebraska is going to be the last team that Ohio State plays that's ranked. So if they go ahead and get out of that game, still polished and be 6-0, and I think they're going to go undefeated. And I think Michigan State is going to look back at this loss and regret it in terms of trying to win that Legends division. So does Ohio State, do you agree with me, does Ohio State win the Big Ten by default? Because it doesn't really seem like there's another team besides Michigan State that would have been able to compete with them in terms of that defense. Why do people go ahead and say Purdue is pretty good this season? I hadn't really been following what they've been doing, so if you can uh, shed any light on that, go ahead and do that as we uh, talk more on Sports Day in the D. When I come back, we're going to talk probably double segment the Detroit Tigers because I don't know if you know this, but the most flawed baseball team in the AL has clinched the AL Central. Yes, the Tigers are going into the postseason. So let's get into some quotes. And now with the way that this show is, we can actually talk about who the Tigers' opponent's going to be. So we'll do that right after the break. Stick here with me. John Ott, Sports Day in the D. Yeah, you hear that, Tigers fans? Welcome back to Sports Day of the D. I'm John Ott with you here at Oakland University, 88.3 FM, the Grizz. The Tigers are now AL Central champions. Suck it, haters. It's LMFAO. Party and take our pets off and dance around, baby, because the Tigers are in. It doesn't even matter that they were only two games that, to win that division. They got it done. Jim Leland says, suck it, haters. Hey, welcome to Sports Day in the D. Just thought I had to do that because that would just be so great. The Tigers, they clinched with 87 and 73, and it didn't even matter if they went 87 and 75. Because yes, it's done. The team that was supposed to win by 12 and 13 games finally gets in. And you know what? There's time to get to some quotes here because. You know, you make fun of the Tigers all year, and you I always bash them all the time. I'll be the first one to tell you that, because it should have been done. But the Tigers hadn't made back-to-back postseasons in this AL Central since 1934 and 1935. It's That's unbelievable. Well, let's get to some quotes here. And this is from an emotional Jim Leland. I can't stress this enough. The first part about it is not as emotional, but let me get into it. I might make fun of the first part of the quote, so bear with me. It says, I'm happy. I can't thank the fans enough. It's been a tough year. In this business, you got to take some hits. And he said he was a tough old bird. He can take some hits. Last year's club was a rah-rah club. And I think a lot of times, because we've lost some games and we've underachieved, you know, he's got the blame. Now he says... Now we've achieved, and we don't have to listen to anyone else now. And that's where the LMFAO, Sexy, and I Know It comes in, because all those haters can suck it, and the Tigers are finally in. 
and he was pretty much saying, I thought that if we held in there long enough, we'd get it done, and we did. And you know what? I think he got some help from your uh, best friends, the Chicago White Sox there, because the whole team pretty much went down there and took a trip in a submarine and opened up the hatch while they were underwater and pretty much drowned to death and floated to the top because Tiger's got a heck of a lot of help to get to that point. So, in that regard, well done, Skip. You held in there and you got some help from your friends. And this is the part where I won't make fun of Jim Leland now. We're going to settle this down a little bit. He said... This was all about the players. There's a lot of guys that could have managed this team and done well. He says he's fortunate to have managed the Detroit Tigers for as long as he has. I'll never forget it. This is about the 3 million people and probably a lot of people who couldn't afford to come here and show up. You were here with us in spirit, and I thank you for that. And toward that last part of that quote, if you heard Jim Leland and you heard the interview with Mario and Pemba on Fox Sports Detroit with Jim Leland, Leland kind of choked up at the end of that. He sounded like he was going to cry a little bit. And I think he really was appreciative of everything and the fans showing up and the Tigers clinching and getting that done. And I think he was a little emotional from that. So like I said, you can get at me at Facebook and Twitter on Sports Day in the D at TBU Gunslinger. I want to remind you guys, and the question I throw out there to you, does it sound like Jim Leland's going to be back? There's some other quotes I want to get into before we double segment the Tigers here and talk about Miguel Cabrera. So I'm going to save the Miguel Cabrera talk for the next segment. I want to use this segment for quotes. So Prince Fielder, you know, you know he was brought in there for the nine-year $214 million to replace Victor Martinez. A lot of Tigers fans are always under that criticism of that the Tigers had added a Prince Fielder this season. They didn't add a Prince Fielder. They replaced a Victor Martinez that was hitting over 300. Mike Illich had to go in there and make that move because Tigers really needed Prince to get this postseason clinched, and he was a big part of it along with Miguel Cabrera. Prince Fielder had this to say about Miguel. He said, Miguel is the best right-handed hitter in the game, and the production is what he hoped. I just wanted to come here and help Miguel win. He also mentioned that it felt good to win where he grew up. So Prince Fielder was a big part of that, and he's a pretty much a likable guy around the clubhouse, always smiling, always laughing, having a good time. I think he's a really good teammate, and along with him and Miguel Cabrera being really good teammates, Tigers are fortunate in that regard. But here was my favorite quote, and something that I really enjoyed, because a lot of Tigers fans know Quentin Berry, as the guy who replaced Austin Jackson, who I believed had the best season out of any Detroit Tiger. And that's not taking anything away from Miguel Cabrera, because we all knew about his production, and he could do what he could do. But I think a lot of Tigers fans had known that they weren't expecting this kind of production out of Austin Jackson. They wanted it since Curtis Granderson has been gone, but you really weren't expecting Austin Jackson to be this good. Quinn or Quinn Barry goes down, or Quinn Barry replaces Austin Jackson after he goes down, I apologize, in July. Quinn Barry had this to say. He's, you know, keep in mind, he spent about seven years in the minor leagues. He said, This is the greatest time of my life. I can't even tell you how it feels. This time last year, I was in a 24-hour fitness watching the playoffs. They took a chance on me, and it's one of the greatest days of my life. And I truly believe from that quote, obviously, you can take away... He's just happy to be a part of the Detroit Tigers. And he's just happy to play for a big league club and get into the postseason. And I really feel good about 
being a fan of Quentin Berry and having him on the team because not only the assets that he brings, about he's going to give you 110%, he's a speedster out there and he's great in the field, but he's just really appreciative. And having that on top of Miguel Cabrera and Prince Fielder, like I had mentioned, I think that's really good for the clubhouse. So what I want to throw in as we talk about some quotes, um, one other quote from Dan Dickerson and Jim Price in 97.1. I think that the uh, Detroit fans are also lucky from this stuff on the radio. I know we're not going to have any hockey this year with Ken Kell, but with Dan Dickerson, Ken Kell, Mark Champion, all these guys on 97.1 that are just so good and really good in Detroit, I think Dan Dickerson had said it best for the Tigers in this regard. He'd said, the roller coaster ride is now over. And that's pretty much what it's been for the Detroit Tigers. Because when they go in here, you say, yeah, they should have locked this up, maybe about 12 to 14 games, get that way locked up in the AL Central, prove their dominance, and get in the playoffs easy. Well, it wasn't easy, but the White Sox never really pulled away, and the Tigers never really fell that far behind, maybe three or four games. And they've only really had the lead up until a day and a half, up until now, when they'd clutched. So it was always around. But here's my question now that we got these quotes out of the way. Does it matter to you how the Tigers got there now that they're in? And what is the one matchup, one team you don't want to see the Tigers play, and something that the Tigers do, whether it be inconsistency on defense or what have you, what's the one thing that the Tigers have that you don't want to see them come back and bite them in the butt? We're going to go ahead and double-segment the Tigers here. So I'm going to come back in there, talk about some of these postseason matchups, and um, just go forward about Miguel Cabrera because he didn't get a chance to talk about that too much. So we're going to do that right after the break. Stick with me here. John Ott, Sports Day in the D from Oakland University, WXOU 88.3 FM. Be right back. Sports Day in the D, John on here back with you at Oakland University, WXOU, The Grizz. And in the previous segment, we were just talking about the Detroit Tigers. And now we're going to go in here and talk about postseason matchups and some of the stuff with Miguel Cabrera. So let's go ahead and get in with Miguel Cabrera. You can get at me here at TBU Gunslinger on Facebook and Twitter. I mentioned to you in the previous segment, did it sound to you like Jim Leland's going to be back? And what's some of the stuff in the postseason as far as the Tigers go that concerns you? Let's get into Miguel Cabrera and take some bit, take care of some business here. Miguel Cabrera, it's official. Dude's won the Triple Crown. Hasn't been done since like 69, Carl Ust- or 67 and Carl Ustremski. That dude just had an amazing season. I think Prince Fielder had a little bit to do with it, but I think a lot of it is on Miguel Cabrera. Ends up hitting about 331. I think my numbers might be off a little bit. 44 home runs, about 127 RBIs, because his notes are about a few days old. So he just got the triple crown. He's gotten it done. And Miguel Cabrera also is in the discussion for the AL MVP. And I don't know if you take anything away from Justin Verlander getting it, from getting the Cy Young and the MVP, because pitchers, quite frankly, don't get both of those. So Justin Verlander goes and gets that. So my question is, do you take any stock? And what I'm thinking is, if the Tigers had already gotten that last season with the MVP and all that, can the Tigers get it two years in a row? I don't know what the baseball writers do on that regard, what they think. Are they really not biased and all that stuff? These are just my opinions that I throw out there. So Tigers could possibly get this two years in a row. The one thing that's a problem for Miguel Cabrera 
is the incredible rookie Mike Trout from the Angels. And this guy comes out, rookie, hits 30-some bombs, steals your 40-some bases, still hitting 300-some. I mean, toward the end of the year, he fell off a little bit, and you can make the argument, Miguel Cabrera played his best baseball at the end of the year and got it done, and you can also make the argument, well, he played his best baseball because he played against the Twins, the Royals, and the White Sox, and I hear all that. What I'm going to go ahead and say, bottom line, before we get into all of this stuff, is that whether or not Miguel Cabrera or Mike Trout wins the MVP does not matter to me, as long as one of those guys ends up winning it, because I think both of those guys are the most deserving, and I wouldn't be surprised, a fork to my nose, that Mike Trout wins the MVP. I would not be disappointed either way. Miggy's got the triple crown, Trout's got the MVP, I'm fine with that, if that's what it comes down to. And... Here's some career numbers. Like I said, they're going to be a little bit off now with some of the stuff at the end of the season. But career numbers going forward for Miguel Cabrera so far. Dude's hitting 318. He's got 321 bombs. Get ready for this. 1,121 RBIs. Dude's not even 30 years old yet. So, I mean, you keep him on the pace and you keep this guy healthy, you could pretty much take that red carpet from Comerica Park and just... Having Fidelity bank line that stuff like when you see those commercials and they have that green arrow says you're safe if you stay on this path. He could pretty much take that red carpet all the way into Cooperstown and get that stuff done because homeboy is a lock for the Hall of Fame as long as he stays healthy. So you can blame Dave Dombrowski as a lot of Tigers fans, myself included, blame Dave Dombrowski about not having a damn farm system for the Detroit Tigers and just having Mike Illich have to sit there and just throw money around and throw money around because he's got a lot to spend and hell the Red Wings are not going to be playing hockey because Gary Bettman's not getting all of his stuff for the NHL so Mike Illich should just be able to throw more money around so what does Dave Dombrowski go out to do to silence all those critics? He made the best move that he could possibly make. I know it was packaged with Dontrell Willis, but he did pretty much get you Miguel Cabrera for a bag of baseballs. And the bag of baseballs I'm talking about is Andrew Miller and Cameron Mabin. I can't tell you if Andrew Miller is still uh, a back-end pitcher for the Red Sox and if Cameron Mabin is still playing on the San Diego Padres because that's about it. I mean, they're not doing anything significant for those ball clubs. And the Marlins have pretty much given away the best hitter in baseball. Miguel Cabrera might not be the best player in baseball in terms of all around. You could argue Trout for that, being able to have more speed and make amazing catches in the outfield. I get all that. But if you ask me right now who is the best pure hitter in baseball, I'm going to tell you Miguel Cabrera, 24-7-365. Because that's just how I feel. And I think a lot of fans, not only in Detroit, but I mean globally around this MLB game, would be able to get with that. So that's where I am on Miguel Cabrera. Good luck for the AL MVP. And congrats on the Triple Crown, bro. Because you had an amazing season. And you know what? Even though he's played against bad teams at the end and the Tigers were fortunate to have an easy schedule, I can't sit here and tell you quite honestly that if Miguel Cabrera wasn't doing what he was doing, Tigers might not have even made the postseason because they could have been playing just as bad as the White Sox and maybe would have had to play a game 163 to decide all this AL Central nonsense. So I'm really happy Miguel Cabrera was able to play the way that he's played. And he, quite honestly, too, 
He's been a great teammate. I know this isn't taken into consideration, but him going from first to third, I don't think he said anything. He welcomed Prince with open arms, and that three and four was able to do massive damage like we all thought they would. So recapping these questions, we just talked Cabrera. Did it sound to you like Jim Leland's going to be back? He got a little bit emotional, and he thanked the fans as the Tigers had clinched the AL Central. And I said to you, now that the Tigers had gotten in, does it matter to you how the season has been a roller coaster? And what concerns do you have going forward for the Tigers in the postseason? Because you know they're a flawed team. You know they ended up with the seventh best record in the American League. But yes, they're in the playoffs. And it just, it's been crazy. <clears throat> and a couple days ago when we were going ahead and do these notes and going to do the show at Oakland University, I did not have the luxury of knowing who the Tigers were going to play in the postseason. And now I do, but in terms of the radio show, I was able to narrow it down to both teams that the Tigers could possibly play. I had mentioned that they were going to play against the Oakland Athletics or the New York Yankees. And now it's been confirmed because the Texas Rangers weren't able to get it done on the final game of the regular season. They lost a 14-game lead in the AL West. And the Angels didn't even make the postseason this season. So it's hard to believe some of the stuff that's gone on. And the Oakland Athletics have something like 15 walk-off wins this season. And these guys have been nothing but magical. So that's who the Tigers end up drawing in the first round when they play Saturday against the Oakland A's. And I think if you're a Tigers fan, you can't script that any better because it kind of seems like it's going to be a reverse 2006. And what I mean by that is the Tigers had played the Yankees in 06 and Simo uh, and the boys hit bombs and got rid of the Bronx Bombers and got it done. And Maglio had taken the Tigers to the World Series after the walk-off against the Oakland A's. So they're playing the Oakland A's first. And depending on what Texas and Baltimore, what they do, that one of these teams is going to have to play up against the Yankees. So the Tigers will be very fortunate that they don't have to play the Texas Rangers and the New York Yankees. They only got to beat one of those guys to get in the postseason. Could be the Baltimore Orioles, but I'm thinking the Tigers are going to either have to play against the Rangers or the Yankees. So honestly, right now, when you ask me what two teams do the Tigers have the best chance of beating in the playoffs, and I say the Oakland Athletics, and the New York Yankees. So it's matched up pretty good for the Tigers in that regard. And the reason why I think that's the case, let's do this in reverse order. If they end up playing against the New York Yankees in the second round, Tigers can beat the Yankees because when you take the Yankees out of Yankee Stadium, they do not play so well. In terms of when they had to play at Comerica Park, they couldn't hit as many home runs. And as much as we like to make fun of the White Sox and people from Chicago like to make fun of their own team, the Yankees are worse than the White Sox in the regard of needing to hit home runs to generate offense. The White Sox were second in the league on that, and the Yankees were first. So the Yankees depend on the home run to get it done to generate their offense. I know that they're a well-balanced ball club on offense, whether you think some of these guys are fraudulent, like Mark Teixeira or Alex Rodriguez. they still got Curtis Granderson, who went over to the Yankees now, that has 40-something bombs, and Derek Jeter's still hitting over 300. And I still 
One of my favorite players, even though he's on the Yankees, I really, really like Robinson Cano at second base. I really like what he does, and I really like the way that he plays. I think he's the one guy and the Yankees that's not fraudulent. But in terms of that, I think the Tigers have a good chance against them, especially when they're playing games like Comerica Park. And the one thing that the Yankees don't have is what they've had pretty much their entire run when Jeter has been in there, is the cut fastball throw in Mariano Rivera, pretty much the best closer in baseball. He was out for the rest of the season very early going in, so Tigers aren't going to have to see him, and that's a good thing. And if you're going to ask me, do the Tigers need to fear Jabba Chamberlain or any of that stuff on the back end? No. I think the only guy maybe Rafael Soriano, or maybe um, trying to think of his name, the Robertson, the other closer for the Yankees, I think he's pretty good. But as far as starting pitching goes, Phil Hughes, yeah, he's been pretty good, but what, so be it. I don't care about Phil Hughes. It's CC Sabathia. If CC Sabathia can pitch like he's able to pitch, that could be a problem. But in terms of that offense, if the Tigers can find out a way to hit those slow curveballs or slow changeups, those crappy pitches that the Tigers can't seem to hit, which they're really hittable pitches, and they should be able to get stuff done. If Tigers can find a way to do that in the postseason, they can match up with the Yankees pretty well, and I don't think that the Yankees should be feared that much. As far as the Oakland Athletics go, it's a totally different story for them, being the fact that they're Cinderella's and all that with the walk-off wins. For the Oakland Athletics, I know you take your pitching staff. Tigers have a good one with Verlander, Hopefully everything's okay with Max Scherzer, Doug Fister, Anibal Sanchez. They have a good pitching staff going forward, so that's going to serve the Tigers very well in the postseason, and especially in these short series when you go ahead and take on the Oakland Athletics. As far as the Athletics go, on their side for the pitching staff, yes, these guys are good, but I believe all but one of these guys, maybe one of the guys that isn't a rookie, doesn't have a lot of experience, they're pretty much going to tr- uh, send out about three or four rookies out in the postseason. And being a rookie and having to go up against Justin Verlander or being all of these hitters, that they've gotten stuff done for the Oakland Athletics, but they're still hitting about 27th or 28th in terms of average or OPS or something like that, and they're pretty much free swingers. Having to go up against Justin Verlander, you got to believe that the Oakland Athletics are going to be a little bit intimidated, and you can give an edge to Verlander, you can give an edge to Fister and Scherzer in that regard. Got to believe the Tigers will get that done. Those hitters, yeah, they've had a lot of success. Yeah, they've had a lot of miracles. But miracles have to run out at some point. Can't be the St. Louis Cardinals of last year winning the World Series. You just can't do it. You can't continue to hit walk-off home run after walk-off home run and get this stuff done. I, I don't believe in that. That's why I say the Tigers will beat the Athletics in the first round, and if they get matched up with the Bronx Bombers in the second round, they can take them. I will go ahead and make some uh, nationally predictions that the Tigers do make it into the World Series next week. I'm not going to go ahead and throw my hand in the ring yet because I'm going to sound completely foolish. I'm just going to say I'm disappointed if the Tigers don't beat the Oakland A's in the first round, and if they get matched up with the Yankees, I'd be disappointed if they don't beat them in the second round and get to the World Series. That's as far as I'm going to go. If in the second round the Tigers end up playing the Baltimore Orioles or the Texas Rangers, I don't feel good about that because the Baltimore Orioles, 
have been a success all season. They're kind of like the Tigers were last year when from the seventh inning or later, pretty much are about 70-1. and one. You don't beat those guys in the seventh inning or later. And if it's a tight game, you know, you, you got to give the edge to the Orioles. And as far as extra innings games go, they have a very good record in that regard, so I don't give the edge of the Tigers there. And as far as Texas goes, Detroit fans this know, know this very well. What have you not said already that's not so... All you do is you say good things about Texas. You say they can steal bases, they can hit, they can pitch, and they got the closers and everything else. They got Elvis Andrews, one of the best shortstops. I know Ian Kinsler commits a lot of errors at second base, but the guy's a professional. He can hit. Still got Josh Hamilton, despite those injuries or whatever. Dude's still got like 43 bombs. All these guys are good. They got Michael Young. They got Mike Napoli, who hits a lot of bombs for a catcher. All those guys are good. I know Ryan Dempster has pretty much been like a gas fire since he's been there with the Texas Rangers. He hasn't been as good as advertised. But they still got, um, trying to think about some of those other starting pitchers that they have for the Rangers that I think I think of on the tip of my tongue. Pretty good guys in there that can get it done and be serviceable just in case if the Tigers get into a shootout with the Texas Rangers. Not entirely sure what's going on with Alexei Agondo. He didn't look that good against that A's game, but I think Texas Rangers, I'm not going to say that they choked, but had some problems on that regard, and where Naftali Feliz is. I know Mike Adams is out for the Rangers, but in terms of that back end of that bullpen, and in terms of the way that they can hit, I'm not going to write off the Texas Rangers either. So if the Tigers play the Baltimore Orioles or the Texas Rangers in the second round, I would think the postseason is coming to an end. I'm going to go ahead and recap the Tigers here really quick, recap this season. We already talked about a little bit of it before, so I'm not going to go ahead and bore you with all of that stuff. But I look at it this way: now that we've taken everything in, and the Tigers have gotten to the postseason, they've been fortunate, and they have a chance to get to the World Series. As far as I'm considered, a lot of people say five-year window for the Tigers because of the Prince Fielder. After about five or so years, he might be a DH mode or whatever, and um, Victor Martinez and all of that coming back next season. I look at it as a three-year window for the Tigers because you still got Verlander signed. You're going to have to get Cabrera more money at that point. You're not really certain what's going to happen with Vmart if he's going to be back. When he does come back next season and the Tigers have to shift around their lineups, what are they going to do because they know Vmart's going to have to DH? So they'll have to figure that out. But I think it's a good problem to have because Vmart is a professional 300 hitter. I'm not going to sit here and say that he's going to go ahead and give you the production that he had last season because I just don't think that that's going to happen considering the guys had about a year off of baseball. But it's a good problem for the Tigers to have when Vmar comes back. If he can do anything of what his old self had done last season, I think the Tigers are in good shape. So I think they need to win it within the next three seasons. So this year included and the two seasons after that. And as far as the Tigers had gone... They hadn't had the same seasons from Johnny Peralta, Alex Avila, and Brendan Bosch pretty much gave them nothing. So for Brendan Bosch, depending on how much money he's making, I think he could be the odd man out. And as far as Johnny Peralta has gone, I thought he might have been one of those odd guys out too. But some people have pointed out to me, and I give them credit for this because this isn't something that I thought of myself, but I still mentioned to you and gave credit to my co-workers for this, 
is Johnny Peralta, I believe, is only making about $6.5 million. It's not bad for an everyday player. So what they were saying was, if you go ahead and you get a second baseman, and you try to go ahead and make him play shortstop, and you might move some things around, or you might move some things around for Jose Valverde and try to find a cheaper closer, just do some things where you can make your team more multifaceted. So that way, when Illich does have to re-up on JV, give more money to Miguel Cabrera, I know Illich is open pocket pocketbook but we do begin to wonder sometimes how much money is this guy necessarily going to spend when is he going to reach his limit and if the tigers can find some caps to lower that down a little bit so he can get more money to bring some other guys in then i think the tigers can be more well-rounded built toward their ballpark and have more lasting success going into the postseason so that's pretty much where we are with the detroit tigers so i go ahead and say on saturday Go enjoy some playoff baseball regardless of the team that you root for and get stuff done because it's pretty fun to watch. Yes, the Tigers have made it. They somehow won the AL Central. So take your pants off and dance, everybody, because it's time to party on Saturday when the Tigers take on the Oakland A's and get it done. When we come back here from Sports in the D, I believe it's going to be the last segment. We're going to talk about some video games and talk about some other stuff that I had seen. Be right back here on Sports in the D. WXOU 88.3 FM. I'm John Out. Be right back. Welcome back to Sports Day in the D. I'm John Out here with you. 88.3 FM. The Grizz from the beautiful Oakland University campus. Last segment here. As we talk about some video game releases, I just want to go ahead and let some things off my mind. You guys can go ahead and get at me at TBU Gunslinger on Facebook and Twitter. I want to know, do you guys have either NBA 2K13 or Resident Evil 6. Big releases coming out on this Tuesday. And you know what? With NBA 2K13, executive produced by Jay-Z, got a lot of good tunes in there. And I really like the way that the game was played as well. Not just because you could alley-oop to yourself and all that stuff, but I think 2K, regardless of the connection issues aside, which you know that you're going to get with 2K games, because believe that they're... Uh, branched out on London and stuff like that so the connection is never really good when the game first comes out so throw that aside everybody knows that you can finally take when they fix everything online too I'm sorry to say that but you can finally take the classic teams like Team USA the Dream Team Charles Barkley I don't know where Reggie Miller is I wish he was back on there and I wish Kareem and all of those guys are back in the lineup. I think they're going to make more of those on the 2K share rosters. But you can finally take all those classic teams and play them online on private team-ups so when the stuff finally works, and I'm not stuck playing two-on-two -two with my friends and stuff like that, you can finally take those online instead of having to play up against the Thunder and Heat every time because everybody's like, oh, give us the Thunders, dog. Give us the Thunders. And then I got to use, like, my master people say, nah, dog, I ain't using the Thunder, dog. With that Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, man, that's just dunked to the rack every time. I got to do that all the time because I get so mad about playing the Thunder every time. And it was so hard to play defense in NBA 2K11. It was, like, ridiculous. Now you can actually lock guys up. With the left trigger, as you know, with the intensity on the Xbox, but you can like shift from side to side, and then you can do more off the ball stuff, like how the right stick now is the uh, crossovers, the control stick, as they like to call that on the demo, which is so annoying having to hear that over and over on the demo. But you can do those off the ball moves and crossovers when you don't have the ball, obviously. So it does 
freeze the computer defenders up, and yes, they play pretty good now in terms of that you can actually depend on them to score your points and do what you need to do when you actually make the right play and they don't do some bonehead thing like run out of bounds or take a center and shoot like a three like how they've seen they used to do that with Tyson Chandler. Tyson Chandler will shoot threes, which I don't understand. So you can actually depend on the computer to get more of that stuff done for you. The game is really well done. My player is really good. I wish you could still kind of play crew mode. I know that stuff really doesn't matter. It was hacked and all of that. But besides that, that was still a platform for people to play on, and it was kind of fun to do it sometimes. Listen, I'm not going to sit there and complain about all of that because I didn't really play it that much. I'm just saying it was kind of weird that they took it out, even regardless with all the glitch and all that. I get it. But the game is really well done. In terms of the computer play, in terms of the passing, you can bounce pass, you can throw alley-oops, you can throw alley-oops to yourself. You can actually play like a point guard, feel like a floor general. And I love... And I know this might not sound like a big different thing. You say, oh, they make these um, sign- signature moves now. Each player has a signature moves, like guys being able to strip the ball or be called closers or have a guy like Young Shaq. When you set screens, you can actually make them fall on their ass when you set a pick and knock them down. Or when you cross somebody over, you can break their ankles. You have certain signature traits, maybe about five or six of them that can be equipped at one time. It's cool to have that. And it gives the game a personality. And what I do credit Jay-Z on, in terms of I know 2K made the game and everything, and Jay-Z made the overall feel, I like the fact that they have like music videos and stuff before the game starts. It makes it feel, and it gives it the rap element of some of the stuff that's missing from the basketball game. It, it humanizes it. It makes it feel connected to the rap and hip-hop culture. And Jay-Z put some good tunes on there, too. So, recommend picking up that game. Like I said, you might not pick it up right away. You might even wait till Christmas when the game comes 30 bucks. You can go ahead and play the All-Star Weekend and all that stuff too. But the fact that you can go ahead and take those classic teams and use them online and you can take my player and it's pretty damn good and all of this stuff is... The game is just really well done and I really think 2K had listened to their fans because the way that it plays and the way that it feels... Like I said, with connection issues aside, hopefully we'll get fixed going forward because I'm not going to forgive them on that. But the way that the game is being able to be played offline and then be able to use the legend teams and all that stuff, I think that's a great addition. I think Jay-Z did a good job contributing to the overall feel. And I think this is the best basketball game that you're going to be able to get on this generation of consoles, the 360 and the PS3, up until whatever the new Xbox is called, the 720 or the PlayStation 4, up until those systems, this is the best basketball game you're going to be able to buy, and you would not regret it if you're a 2K fan. So much better than 2K12. And as far as Resident Evil 6 goes, I have some things to say. Played the demo. I don't know how much the demo had changed. I played both demos, the one from Dragon's Dogma and the one from the public release that was out in the marketplace. Not so sure how much that stuff had changed from the public release up to the official game. But I'd seen a lot of reviews on Resident Evil 6, and I had it reserved with NBA 2K13. I ended up taking my reserve off Resident Evil 6 and just getting like NBA 2K for 35 bucks, and I wasn't disappointed with that at all. With all the reviews that I had saw slamming Resident Evil 6 and saying that the franchise's direction's at a crossroads because of games like Resident Evil 4 and 5... Resident Evil lost its identity, and it might not ever go back to the old Resident Evils of 1, 2, and 3 and the uh, 
the camera angles that were CG'd and stuck, and the more scare tactics and the zombies and all that, which I loved all those old games. And I thought Resident Evil 4 and 5 were really damn good. But when I played Resident Evil 6, I agreed with some of the stuff that the reviewers had said. Maybe not given the game like 3.5 out of 10 or 4 out of 10 with some of the stuff that I'd seen. But in terms of that, I think the franchise might be at a crossroads. I definitely agree with that in terms of where they want to go. Resident Evil 6, I don't think is going to sway anybody that didn't like Resident Evil 5 to not buy from these reviews. I think if you liked Resident Evil 5, you're going to like Resident Evil 6 more because it gives you more of what you want. But playing from the demo, I didn't realize that it was the same engine from 5, and the graphics just don't look as good, especially on the PS3. It's a lot more dark, and even having like a 42-inch Panasonic Plasma Viera and having to adjust that stuff on the brightness, including to having to adjust brightness on my TV, which is crazy, past the point of already where the picture looks good on every other game on the PS3 that I have where I have it adjusted right, because I know how to do that stuff. Sometimes it can be too dark. And you still can't see crap on uh, Resident Evil 6 on the PS3. I got some problems with that. And the way that some of the camera angles are, and the way that some of the gameplay is just boring, or when you're playing with your co-op partner, and sometimes the co-op partner doesn't have anything to do or the way that some of the stuff is, just seems like Capcom dropped a dud on everybody. And to buy the game at 60 bucks, I think is a waste of money. Go ahead, I'm probably still going to play the game, granted, because I am a Resident Evil fan. I'm just going to wait until like Christmas time or something when the game drops to about 30 bucks, and I'll get a purchase then, or I'll rent the game for 7 days, play it with a friend, beat it, and take it back, because I know I'm still going to play it, but I just didn't like what I was seeing, and I liked Resident Evil 5. I know a lot of people say, I don't like that because they didn't like Resident Evil 4 or Change of Direction. Resident Evil 5 was still a really damn good game. In terms of the co-op and everything, then they got it done right. Resident Evil 6 just feels off, doesn't feel the same, kind of feels boring. I wasn't happy with what they'd done because I was really excited being a Resident Evil fan. I had the release date marked on my calendar, and I was ready to play it, and I just don't think it's going to provide what everybody wanted. When they think about it, and said, yeah, it's a 20-hour game. But when you really sit back and think about it, I think a lot of people will say, I can't justify a $60 purchase. So I had to go ahead and get that off my mind. And in terms of the next game I'm going to buy, like I said, I'm doing taking college classes, work, and all that stuff, and doing stuff with the radio show. So I might not be able to play games all the time. And NBA 2K13 might take a lot of my time away from that, because the game is really well made. It's incredible. Um, Borderlands 2... Might be the next one. I know it's similar to just Borderlands, and maybe I got bored of that sometimes borrowing it from a friend. But uh, I think I might give Borderlands 2 a try and play with some people. Like the Resident Evil 6 thing. Not buy it, but just play it. But in terms of games to buy, I'm beginning to wonder, with the 360 and the PS3 being out for, what, about six years now? Five, six years, something like that? Uh, is this the final hurrah for all these systems, and what games would you recommend that I buy? Like I said, I'm an action action guy. Don't really like first-person shooters as much. I like those games like Uncharted and stuff on the PS3. I thought they were good. I like the action games and the console-style RPGs. I was really disappointed. I know everything is going towards uh, action games now and not having as many console-style RPGs because everybody wants to play 
games online with the online team play. So I don't get stuff like Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior or those good Final Fantasies back on the day on the Sony PlayStation. I like that stuff. I mean, the last good RPG that I played was Lost Odyssey on the 360. That's a long time ago. You have to sit there and tell me that's the best thing they're going to release, which was a damn good game in its own right. But if you can't go ahead and get me another good game in between that, then I'm pretty disappointed with the way that these consoles have been. Because don't tell me you got to play Oblivion, you got to play Skyrim. I mean, at some point, I want to go back to play some console-style Japanese RPGs that don't suck, and the PS3 didn't release a lot of those for me. 360 pretty much didn't get any of those. So I was kind of upset, and I'm kind of thinking that the next great release is going to come from these new consoles whenever they come out. So this is John Ott signing off for Sports Day in the D. It's October 4th show for Oakland University, October 5th now when I gave it to you. So thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. It's going to be warm here in Michigan for this next Friday, and I think it's going to rain on the weekend. So go ahead and enjoy, like, I believe 75-degree weather. So take advantage of it while you can in October. Stay safe. Have a great weekend, and I'll get at you next week. Thanks for listening. Peace.